and <laughs> welcome to What Have We Done, a wine cast for the amateur enthusiast, someone enthusiastic about wine. We're here for you. And we have a really exciting episode today on a really fun concept that I am a huge fan of, and I'm slowly converting Dana to become a big fan of as well. <laughs> it's pretty easy to do. Um, we are talking about orange wines. Yes. And the idea of an orange wine may be a little unknown. So essentially this episode will dig into like what in the world an orange wine is, kind of the history of it um, in the regions where it's primarily developed and how it's kind of spread from there. And then we get to talk about science. Yes. So we have a little bit about like why, like what makes orange wines orange, as well as like these really fun little rabbit holes we went exploring around natural wines themselves and like compounds in orange wine. So get ready for it. Yeah. I first heard about orange wines a few years ago, actually. It was something that you know, I had never seen before, never heard of before. was completely unfamiliar with um, until my partner was actually visiting a friend of hers uh, in the country of Georgia. Also, we're going to mention Georgia a lot in this episode. We are, in fact, referring to the country and not the great state of Georgia. Um, sorry, Georgians. Um, but anyways, <laughs> my, my, my partner was, um, was visiting Georgia uh, with a friend who was doing her PhD research there. And uh, they ended up going to some really cool, rural, more remote areas um, to explore wine. And she came back from this trip, like raving about the cool wine adventures she had had largely around the concept of orange wine, which again, before this point uh, was a completely unknown subject for me. And she had been doing a lot of tasting in these kind of natural, uh, old school, like Georgian wineries that specialized in making wines in clay pots that were then buried and aged underground. And I had never heard of this before. Uh, <laughs> she couldn't really explain it much better than that. And that was what kind of kicked us off in discovering more and learning more about orange wines. And she really wanted me to taste them. And we had a hard time kind of finding them in any stores. So we were looking for wineries uh, near where we were in California that made and produced orange wine, which was very, very hard to find. Um, specifically, I mean, specifically, she was looking for orange wines made in the traditional clay pot method. So we're going to talk a little bit about the the connection, the um, relationship between kind of the natural biodynamic wine movement and orange wine. They're very, very interconnected. Um, but she was specifically looking for a place that did clay pot orange wine. And we came across the winery, uh, a winery in Sonoma called Kivelstad, which I'm sure you've heard us mention a few times on this podcast, um, because we are in fact members and, that was the original reason that we found Kivelstad. And at the time, it was a very, very small winery and a very small little shared tasting room uh, in a small town up in northern Sonoma. And we got there, you know, t 
to do the tasting, started talking to the the people there about orange wine and about oh we she just come from like this trip from Georgia. We were sitting like the clay pot method, and they were very excited. And of course, specialized in making orange wine. I wouldn't actually say that's their specialization now, but I think that's kind of one of the ways in which people kind of found out about this winery um, was their focus on making um, orange wine. I almost opened a bottle of their orange wine. It's called the Wayward Sun. And today I'm actually going to have a different one to talk about here today, but I'm going to mention their orange wine just briefly, just because it was so like shocking to drink at first. Um, and again, we went into this not really knowing what an orange wine was or what made a, this wine orange or kind of the much about it, except that the stuff in Georgia was really, really great and aged in clay pots. And we had it in like a normal flight and it was so different than everything else. We actually didn't really leave with much of an opinion because we were just sort of like, this is so unique. This is just nothing that like we're familiar with. Um, and bought a bottle, maybe two, and then, you know, have had it more, more frequently and kind of formed an opinion over time about it as we sort of warmed up to the, the concept and learned more of kind of what was actually going on. Um, and slowly we've been converted to orange wine fans. Um, and I've looked for them. Why do I look for them just about everywhere we go at this point, Dana, whether or not, you know, they have them or not. I'm always glancing at menus at places for what random orange wine we can find. Um, but yeah, the, the concept of orange wine is very much tied into uh, the history of using clay pots as vessels for, for winemaking. And this style of uh, winemaking, also commonly referred to on the internet as amphora wine, amphora just being the Italian word for clay vessels, um, it goes back actually to central Anatolia about five or 6,000 years ago. So archaeological wow. um, excavations have unearthed clay pot vessels um, around the, the I guess, West Asia um, region um, and what is now known as kind of the Eastern Europe and the Caucasus through um, what is now Turkey. And it was used to make the wine, to store the wine, and to transport the wine. So the clay pots had multiple um, functions, and most were made with clay, um, but they can also be used with, with uh, they can also be made with concrete or sandstone as well. Um, and the, specifically, the, the style of the sort of ex-Soviet nations, Eastern European nations, um, have a long history of using clay pots. It's what is the region most associated with that style. And it's really come back into fashion now, um, tied up in the natural wine movement. Um, so a lot of, a lot of trends beyond just wine, but food trends, exercise trends, all kinds of things. There's a, there's a lot of, um, movement towards like, ancient, um, natural, you know, processes and, and, and things. And, and that's, it's also found in wine. Um, and one of the results of this is looking for traditional, um, production methods, including using clay pots. Um, in Georgia, they're called, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation. So I, I so sincerely apologize to my Georgian or Armenian speaking colleagues out there, but in Georgia, uh, they're called kvevris. In Armenia, they're called karas, and they are large egg-shaped clay pots. The process for making wine in a clay pot is more or less the same as any other process. Um, the grapes are destemmed and they're put uh, in the vessel. 
Um, the leaves sink to the bottom and the skins float to the top. The indigenous yeast, again, really focusing on indigenous yeast and non-additives, um, very traditional, natural uh, winemaking processes. Um, that, that yeast starts the fermentation process, at which point the clay pots are buried underground. The clay, in addition to burying them underground, protects against heat and sunlight. And they're really, really naturally just great vessels at temperature control. They keep wine super cool, which is one of the main kind mm. of features of using clay pots for wine. And I'll, I'll mention also briefly that clay pots are not just used for orange wine. Again, that's kind of what they're most associated with. Um, but clay pots are now used in, in lots of different types of wine styles and productions. Um, so one really cool thing that I think we've actually mentioned briefly on this podcast before um, but in the, the, or throughout the fermentation cycle, because of the shape, um, of the, the, the clay pots themselves, the skins are processed through the vessel, uh, in sort of like this vortex movement. It's called, what winemakers call a punch down. And basically the, the skins, they, they go to the top, they're kind of sucked around the edges down to the bottom and pushed out up again through, through the middle back to the top and kind of rotate around in like a whirlpool fashion, much slower than like a, a whirlpool. But this is also one of the things that gives the wine extensive skin contact um, as the skins kind of cycle through, which is really distinct from oak barrels and stainless steel tanks, although there are some... Um, kind of synthetic ways of mimicking the cycle in steel tanks and, and barrels too. Um, but a lot of that skin contact is what originally naturally led to white grapes being aged, coming out orange. So that's the principal kind of thing behind orange wine is it's just, it's just white grapes being fermented, but the extensive skin contact gives it different flavors, different textures, and of course the different colors. And this natural process in the clay pots also removes the need for batonnage, which we also did mention, I think, in our barrel episode, um, or the idea of kind of stirring the wine to, to, again, like imitate and recreate that, that movement of the sediment inside the, the barrels. One of the results or some of the results of, of using clay pots is you get earthier notes, you get the texture from the skin contact. The clay pots are also more porous um, than using a barrel or a stainless steel tank. So the oxidation levels are quite different, um, generally higher. So the wine oxidizes quite a bit more throughout the fermentation process. Although oxidation can be controlled with natural beeswax linings, which are still very, very common in the use of clay pots. Um, mm. Because of the, the steady, cool temperatures during the fermentation process um, the, and the general like longer fermentation period, uh, it often results in what you, you like brighter, more fresh wines that we tend to associate a lot with uh, kind of the biodynamic natural wine movement. Um, and in the country of Georgia, um, orange wines are often made from the Rakatsitelli or the Kisi grapes, which are, I guess, pretty standard indigenous white grapes to the region. Um, but again, in this sense, they're, they're coming out white. And orange wine can theoretically be made with just about any kind of white grape. It really is the process, not the grape itself, that has anything to do with the orange color. And that really is, is the process. 
I was going to make an exclamation of, wow, that's so interesting. (laughs) And also like kind of what I love about thinking with wine and winemaking processes are how differently you could do it based on like the environment in which these wines are being grown in. So like, I wonder too about like clay pots, like what struck me with what you're talking about was, you know, something as simple as adding like beeswax in order to slow oxidation, like all of these different experimentations, the different ways in which winemakers have been playing with the effects of the environment and and all of these different variables in terms of temperature and oxygen levels and like skin contact just like i don't know it's just like so interesting to think about and i know we've talked about a lot before how like a winemaker needs to understand not only what the finished product is going to taste like but like to understand what it tastes like before it's a finished product and so like particularly with orange wines, which are in a lot of ways prided for being non, uh, for not having any additives. Um, it's the wine is going to taste funky. And so you have to be able to tell based on what is already going to end up being a very funky wine that doesn't necessarily have the same kind of distinct notes that we associate with like all the different red varietals we've spoken about, for example, like the difference between like a, a Carignan or a a Cabernet uh, or a Merlot, you have to be able to taste that before it's bottled to decide like, how long am I going to oak this for? How long should it be bottled for? And a lot of it is also unfiltered, which has, you know, a continuing effect on the wine. So even thinking about like telling a consumer when a bottle should be opened is all a part of that experimentation process. I just think it's so interesting. Yeah. So what are you, what are you drinking, Dana? What am I drinking? So I am going to retrospectively talk about an orange wine. I tasted at a restaurant uh, just the other day um, as my my current taste. Um, so I went to Tip Cow, which is a Laotian restaurant in Columbia Heights in Washington, D.C. And it is a phenomenal, such amazing food. I love it. Um, and also they were serving an orange wine, which was also just wonderful. Um, so the orange wine is called um, Maurer. Ozarkar. Um, it's a wine from Serbia. Uh, and the particular varietal I tasted was a ferment vojividina. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, but yes, anyway. Um, so I got a glass of this. And I'm going to briefly talk about what I tasted. And also I dug into the vineyard itself and it has like a really interesting story. So the orange wine was like pretty crisp immediately. Like when you like the off the nose, you get these like mint apricot and like appley hints. Um, And then 
when you taste it, you definitely get this like wet earthness. You get a bunch of citrus notes, but it's more like in the grapefruit family um, with like this reinforcement of like apples and almost like apple peels, at least to me. Uh, and I was actually surprised it was pretty buttery, like not in a bad way. I love butter and wines. So it was, it's been, I looked it up and it, the um, wine was oaked for four months and it gives just enough body and smoothness to it that it gives that little bit of a buttery uh, texture um, more than flavor. And obviously it's like a little funky. It's a little effervescent. It was so refreshing to drink. Um, it's been wicked cold. And even though I typically drink a lot of red wines in the winter to keep warm, it was like, I don't know, it was just like robust and um, so full in flavor that it it kind of hit that spot for me. Uh, so a little bit of background, uh, the The wine is from, uh, I guess, of Serbia. It's uh, a vineyard that has two locations. It's, it has, uh, it's approximately 15 hectares of land. Um, and actually, interestingly enough, um, because of the shifting, like, national de demarcation lines, the northern part of the vineyard was actually previously in Hungary. Um, and then with new map drawings, um, I believe, and I don't want to make a mistake, so I'm just going to double check the date right now, but I believe it was in 1920 when the region was re, uh, the boundaries were remade. And so the winery was actually quote unquote transported to Serbia, but like, it makes it really interesting because, you know, all of the you know, the communities, Hungarian. Um, and so there's that, that, that shift, I guess, or, or those, those differences and maybe not so much differences in the, like the locations of the two vineyards. Um, the wine is grown on mostly sand and volcanic and sedimentary rock. So you get that, a lot of that minerality, uh, and it's the, the, the website uh, describes the climate as sub-Mediterranean. It's actually, so one of the vineyards is located near the uh, Danube River. And so it's actually terraced on these steep slopes. So um, you get uh, a, quite a lot of different kind of interactions with, you know, with the soil and the sand and the volcanic rocks, as well as the... Mm atmosphere created by being near the river. Um, and the vineyard and the winemaker is very, very, um, set on being completely organic, but also as little impact in terms of like using electricity or any sort of machinery as possible. So they are like very, cognizant of their like ecological impact and they actually have a video um that talks about like mm -hmm. their commitment to these more sustainable vineyard management processes and he's he says that like if he didn't have to ship wine in order to like keep 
the vineyard afloat, he wouldn't like, he'd prefer that like everything was served locally because like all of the wood that they use for barrels, like everything is locally produced Mm. and sourced. And just because, you know, they need to survive their shipping to places like DC. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I just thought that was really interesting, uh, to hear, like how important it was for this vin, like this winemaker to to make orange wines not only in the style that you described uh, using clay pots, but like why, like the non-intervention of any additives and using all of these like sustainable methods was as important in the as the wine, uh, like it was important in in making the wine what it is. It's also interesting to talk about some of the, like, especially like Eastern European, like wineries, like these ones in Georgia, um, you know, Bulgaria, Slovenia, Serbia, Hungary, um, that are all like, well, not all, but many of them are are quite old, like hundreds of years old (laughs) and how they're like, they so like predate like modern conceptions of the nation state. Um, it's just like very, the, the, the techniques are just a lot more interconnected and, kind of borderless than kind of the, especially like post-Soviet like world in which they live. Um, but it's all, it's also interesting. I think a lot of, a lot of places I was finding online were mentioning, um, that orange wine is especially good with, um, like spicy, but also like meaty foods. So like one place was saying the Ethiopian cuisine, a lot of places are saying like uh, Southeast mm-hmm. Asian cuisine, uh, like, like in your example, because you both have the, the brightness and acidity uh, of a white that kind of cuts through spice, but the skin contact of the orange wine makes it a little bit like heavier and almost like tanniny, uh, which can mm-hmm. hold up on kind of heavier, like even like red meat based meals. Um, so it's kind of cool to hear that you also had one with very much in line with what the suggestion of one of the great uses of orange wine is. And like, actually, now that you say that, it makes me think a lot about how our, like what we consider to be like wines that we drink all the time is very much associated with the kinds of food that we have regular access to and you know, what's considered quote unquote, a fancy meal or what's considered a high end wine. And so it actually, you know, it's kind of inspiring. It's not the right word, but more of like, um, it's wonderful to hear that orange wine is becoming more popular in a sense, because hopefully then it will highlight these different cuisines that maybe like I've never had Laotian food before. And this restaurant is becoming extremely popular in DC. And like, it would be lovely if like this trend towards foods that are outside of what I'm being a little bit biased, but like what we may associate with like a typical American diet would be. Um, And if wine is like a way of kind of opening that door a little bit more or, or providing more pathways for that to become a reality and a normal part of our lives and that's great like yes i think the other benefit kind of is orange wine as a concept spreads and becomes more popular consumed and and marketable is there's more and more variation in the techniques used to make it so while you know to take anything away from the the clay pot method which is super super cool go find one if you haven't tasted this this before It's, it's it's amazing 
Um, but the versatility of different like productions and using like, why can't an orange wine be oaked? You know, and just different things and, and kind of how it's being used in both like larger production wineries, uh, the urban style wineries, which we were talking about before. And I think you're just going to mm-hmm. get much more like variation, kind of interesting, fun things happening with orange wines. And again, because it can use, be used with any kind of white grape. It's not like restrictive in, in that. There's a lot of, lot of different like room for experimentation and just options and kind of how, how that materializes. It's very exciting. It is. Um, so I'm going to expand a little bit more about like what makes orange wine orange uh, and go down one of two rabbit holes <laughs> that I fell into, not even a rabbit hole, like massive abysses of information about the like more chemistry side of this wine. And so um, I'm going to preface with, I am not a scientist. I do not really at my core understand chemistry. And so this is my best interpretation and I hope you can just go with me. <laughs> um, so that being said, <laughs> okay. Um, lignin, Vale. Okay. So I'm going to talk about this uh, molecular compound found in, or it's a polymer look at that word, a polymer, uh, found in grape seeds. And it's responsible along with skin contact for giving orange wine its orange hue. So lignin is a compound that's found in plant walls. It's actually responsible for like cellulose is like the major component in, in plant walls that give it stability. Um, you may remember from like biology or chemistry classes in high school where they talked about like our cells, which are like super fluid and movie. And then you have like cells in plants, which are a lot more rigid and stable that give, you know, plants their structure in a lot of ways. Um, the cellulose is responsible for that rigidity and um, cellulose and other kind of compounds similar to it are connected often through this lignin substance polymer. Um, And um, for example, like lignification is a process that like makes things, I know, right? Whoa, second word. Uh, (laughs) Makes things like more woody, like more rigid uh, along those those lines. Um, Next fact I want to talk about is that lignin is um, while it, it itself is colorless, it in interaction with other molecules has an effect of either producing a yellow or amber colored tint. Um, and I believe this is where the science goes a little haywire because I could not find an actual discussion of this, but I think it has to do a little bit with oxidation. I think it's with, with exposure to air possibly that causes this yellowing or ampering effect. Again, this last portion, what I just said is not scientifically found, but it, I do know that it's in, in interactions, um, molecular interactions that this lignin compound is able to produce this color. So what does this mean? Why is this important? When, um, 
white wines uh, are being prepared for becoming orange wines. Um, wine producers will do maceration processes, which is essentially, you know, stamping or, or um, breaking down the grapes so that it can, um, the juice is re- released. And then you put like all the seeds and skins in with this wine. Um, the skin itself, the skin contact does provide a tint, um, often along these amber tones, but the skin, the grape seeds as well have this compound and like further adds to these, uh, different, the, to this coloration along these like red, amber, and yellow tones. Um, so yeah, so in combination, skin contact, Scott contact with these grape seeds, um, allows for these interaction, molecular interactions to occur uh, and for this hue to arise. Obviously, more skin contact and uh, contact in general will deepen the color. Um, another really interesting factor in lignin is, so apparently after cellulose, lignin is the second most common organic substance on earth. And this has a lot of um, like bio industrial purposes um, that are being explored. And so I couldn't help but take this bait because um, in thinking a lot about how wine is produced, a lot of the grape seeds and are like, you know, are a waste. They're, you know, discarded after uh, in the winemaking process. And so in thinking about what other uses can this waste have on a larger scale. Um, there's an article that dug into um, th- using products that have lignin like grape seeds as a natural resource that can provide um, an alternative to petroleum and other um, and, and to petroleum in things like adhesives, uh, in making artificial uh, fibers um, as an energy source. And I'm not going to get into too much of the scientific details, but essentially the way in which um, lignin can be extracted from plants, such as um, gra- like tall grasses. Uh, I believe it comes also from like corn, like husks or something around corn as well as in grape seeds. Uh, There's some sort of process that can turn the uh, aromatics uh, compounds in these lignin into an energy source um, and can be further refined for other kinds of products. So I'm going to stop because I'm going to get down a lot of talk that I'm not exactly 100% confident to say with authority on the internet, but that this is being explored as a potential industrial resource, you know, kind of makes me think a lot about how, like when we talk about wine, it's not solely kept in the realm of like food and drink and, you know, these, these social events or circumstances that we describe like dinners or wine tasting, like there's wine and like the production of wine extends into other industries like 
um, mm. manufacturing different infrastructures and apparently as an alternative energy source. So something to keep in mind, like when you drink wine, what else is it going towards? Um, how else can we trace these connections on like a global scale? Yeah. And is wine and wine consumption part of the solution to climate change? Sounds like maybe. Sounds like probably yes. Yay, science. <laughs> Yay, science. Yes, again, not a chemist. <laughs> so um, definitely check up on this. But I mean, this is this is something that I would be really interested in hearing about, like as we, uh, particularly in terms of like climate change and like other sustainable endeavors, mm-hmm. you know, what, how much of what we're already doing can be converted into a resource you know, rather than reinventing the wheel, what, you know, what can we, how can we use the tools at hand to make better, like ecological choices? It's also interesting, like the, the conversation around like natural wine and like being more like in touch with like natural processes, more sustainable, um, and just what stuff's already happening in the basic science of the wine anyways, that could potentially be like exploited for lack of a better word. Um, uh for that um and man what i wouldn't like i would love to have like uh, a bill nye style like wine science tv show like in that exact like mm-hmm. format and style like for adults to have like visuals and things to help like represent some of these concepts maybe mm-hmm. that's our next project after the uh, after the podcast is recruiting bill mm-hmm. nye to join us in the in a tv show but we'll see you know, I mean, the writers of Wine Folly, as we love to follow, do a lot of those images and like breakdown of concepts. So if they wanted to make like a, a mini docuseries <laughs> yeah. with like, that would be amazing. Um, and I think that there's, we're interested. There definitely have to be other people interested. People listen to us. They definitely <laughs> want to see... <laughs> they'd want to see i would want to see like how these kind of processes unfold and and have something a little bit more concrete like a a flow chart or a grid another interesting tidbit about the orange color too um when i first went to kibosat it was kind of like oh my god what is this and like why isn't why isn't it like more common and the winemaker is actually saying that one of the reasons that until recently um it's sort of piggybacked on the natural wine biodynamic um, winemaking trend, if you will. But one of the reasons it wasn't more commonly found, especially here in, in the States and Western Europe, is that it's just not marketable largely because of the orange color. So if you have like a normal bottle of white wine and it goes hmm. bad, it oxidizes, it gets corked, it turns to vinegar, it becomes the exact same color as an orange wine. So he was saying that a couple of times they've actually tried to stock it in stores and people were just like thinking, well, that batch, like it's just, it's gone bad and like not buying it because of that orange color. Because the unless the concept itself is sort of more understood and more accepted as like red and white, it can also be orange. Um, I think it's still going to be a little bit challenging to uh, to overcome some of the, the color bias, if you will, um, in, in like marketability of wine. So that made me think immediately of rosé, right? And like, how did rosé become marketed 
in the particular ways that it has. And we've talked about this before, like the process of making rosé um, and the ways in which it was marketed to certain uh, communities and groups and, you know, the, the whole narrative around it. Like how fascinating would it be if there was a researcher doing their PhD on like how wine becomes understood on like a societal context, like they can compare like how rosé became popularized and like who it was consumed by and like maybe trace what may be an emerging trend in orange wine now and see if it has like similar tactics for how it's being commercialized or if not, if maybe because of it being a natural wine and having this emphasis on, you know, more sustainable methods it's changing the conversation around who would be consuming this wine and why. And if like marketing has to align with that, which I assume it does. I feel like on Wink and other um, online wine distributors, the whole like natural wine wave, as it were, like relies heavily on this like consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, well... Digame, what are you drinking? Yeah, so I am having an orange wine. Um, I think it's it's been a couple of years now, and I think I've always had at least one like in stock in my home, if not like a couple. Um, that's <laughs> just an indication of how much I've come to really like them. And this one is aptly named uh, Contact High. Uh, from uh, Tank Garage Winery, uh, one of the weirdest and coolest wineries in Napa that does a lot of kind of experimental stuff. I think we talked about them a little bit in the Urban Winery episode. Um, but unsurprisingly to people who like Tank Garage Winery, they do uh, frequently make orange wines. And this one specifically has um, seven days of skin contact. Um, and on that note, Skin contact is like the sort of principal feature of orange wines, but the skin contact can look very, very different. I've seen it as short as like two or three days. It can be as long as a year. Um, it's really it depends on the grapes. It depends on the vessel. It depends on winemaker's choice. It depends on all sorts of different things and sort of why that can be shorter or longer. I think most commonly we're seeing right now um, kind of in the, one to two week range. Um, mm. But again, it just really depends on, on what you're going for. There's a really a, a pretty giant range of orange wines. And this one, um, which is also common in orange wines, it's a bit of a, a field blend of different white varietals. Um, this one has Viognier, Chardonnay, Picpoul, Marsan, Grenache Blanc, Grenache, Mouvedre, Bourbelang and Cunoise. Um, so largely white grapes, a little bit of red grapes, kind of the, a Cunoise being a little bit of a rosé grape in very small amounts um, and kind of all, you know, co-ferment, cluster fermented um, and then aged uh, together with seven days of skin contact. And it's, it's a pretty crazy wine. Um, <laughs> it's it's a little bit hard to hard to explain again that there's just not as many sort of common reference points I think for describing and talking about orange wines. Um, 
I would describe it kind of like um, lots of kind of tr bright tropical fruits, but quite a bit heavier. It doesn't, it's not like as um, like deep in flavor as a rosé, but it's very, very flavorful. It's a lot more like flavorful and like bold than you'd associate generally with a white wine. This one's actually very low um, because it's only seven days of skin contact. It's not adding too much of the um, the, the texture, the, the cream, the, the kind of skin contact tannin you get in a lot of the heavier orange wines. So it's quite light, even for an orange wine in texture, hmm. but in flavor, it definitely packs a punch. Um, this could be like easily, like you could easily drink this on like a hot day or as we were talking about before, like with a, like a heavy like coconut based like spicy curry or something it, it's just equally good in either of those situations which is also one of the cool things about orange wine it's just so versatile um and yeah it's just i really like this wine it's really really well done and it's not also so often that you see kind of more mainstream like geographical areas and wineries and like what we associate with sort of like higher end prestige like american winemakers making orange wine uh it's a bit of a treat to have this one um because it's a little bit more kind of controlled and mainstream even as an orange wine than i think you get with some of the the wonkier ones at the urban wineries or or other places like that so it's it's very accessible if you've not had an orange wine before as a great entry point while still being like really exciting and very like confusing to like the, the novel, like orange wine uh, connoisseur. It's really, really exciting. I just really like this one. Yes. I'm trying to remember. I tasted it when we went to the vineyard, right? Yeah. I think, um, I think we all tasted this when we, when we went up there. Okay. Yeah. yeah I'm, kicking myself that i didn't get a bottle <laughs> it's hard to remember because i think we right before this we had a pet net which is already like totally like wonky and like out of the ordinary and a little bit of like a, a palette destroyer um yeah but yeah i mean all kinds of really cool wines um and yeah this is i i still my, my personal favorite again uh, I'll, I'll i will not stop recommending kevelstadt's wayward son wonderful wonderful orange wine still to this day the best orange wine i've had um but certainly this tank garage one a little bit different in style um but also really really good uh, i think one kind of concluding thought on orange wine is just the the prevalence of it again because it's not inherently dependent on region or grape uh as you can kind of find and make orange wines anywhere, which is really, really cool. Um, orange wines, I think, will always kind of have a home in, in Eastern Europe is kind of the origin of where they are, uh, even though the the urban natural wine movement is really making a, a really strong effort to incorporate orange wines into a lot of what, what they do. Um, but another country that has a lot of orange wines um, that are really, really cool and very, very different in style um, than some of the Eastern European ones um, is Italy. In Italy, they're, they're referred to as Ramato, uh, and especially in the northeast border, where it's a little bit cooler towards the Slovenian border, there's tons and tons of orange wines. I think it's probably the, the I don't have numbers for this because there's not a lot of information on orange wines in general, 
but it's probably the, the, the country in the area that's producing the most orange wines right now. Uh, it had been for a very long time, um, well before the natural wine scene kind of took off. Although they're also a big part of the natural wine scene too, and some of the reason for the, the takeoff of that scene. Um, but throughout that region, um, Slovenia, uh, Hungary, eastwards, um, there's actually quite a few you can find now in France and Spain, um, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and of course, the United States, um, as we've talked about many times already in this podcast, um, some of the great urban wineries um, in the United States, all across the, from east to west. A lot of them are, are doing more in orange wines too. So certainly something that's, that's findable if you can find one uh, and do yourself a favor and try one. I'm going to make one more like conceptual thing. I'm just all about theories right now. This is what happens when <laughs> you catch me after teaching. <laughs> all I have in my mind are theories. But like, imagine if we were like Italian doing this podcast or if we were you know in in portugal um like or we were portuguese doing this or or from any other major wine region without of like with speaking from either that place in the world or like without like our deep knowledge of like united states wine like would we talk about the same things <laughs> would we have a different focus probably probably just anyway just thinking about orange wines and like our previous episode on like Mexican wines, like I'd love for us to like really dig into more international context. Like I think it would be a, a great way to get us out of our U S comfort zone, but mm -hmm. also maybe help us think differently about wine slash one day travel and <laughs> yeah. do an episode in sight. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. It's kind of hard to say how exactly it does shape that, but I, I, it definitely does. And like our experience, like our last episode being on, or not last, but a couple episodes ago being on urban wineries, our experience um, from living in California with some of the growth of urban wineries and that lens of exposure into orange wine. Um, I think those are all like definitely like coloring our, our vision of how we're like thinking about these things. And mm -hmm. not that I know much about orange wine in Portugal, although it probably exists because it is ex exists just about anywhere that, that wine is made. Um, I, I definitely do think that that kind of, that, that context, that, that subjectivity, like really like changes the way that we're like approaching these different topics. Um, and if you're, if you're listening from anywhere else in the world and want to challenge our, what are likely to be even subconsciously like American centric views on, on wine and different wine concepts, please, please write to us and tell us and, and share your thoughts. With please us. do. We want to hear about it. <laughs> we want to learn and grow. Maybe you too can be a, a guest on the podcast. Yes. Vale. I am happy to start with wine of the week. Uh, so I had a Catalonian um, wine actually yesterday. Um, that was quite lovely. Uh, again, at a restaurant because it's nice to be able to go to restaurants a little bit easier now. And so I've enjoyed going out. Uh, so the wine I had was an Ametzler. Uh, I probably didn't say that correctly. It's a Grenache Carignan. I'm forgetting the year. I want to say it was a 2019. 
Uh, and it's like I said before, it's from the Catalonia region in Spain. And it was, it was an interesting wine. It definitely needed air. Um, so first sip, especially when you just opened the bottle and then took a first sip, it was a little bit, um, almost like scrunched, very condensed, kind of like very, very spicy in a way that you're like, oh, maybe this isn't the wine for me. But once you started swirling that glass and so I was eating throughout my meal, I just keep swirling and swirling. And by the, like the middle to end of the meal, it had completely shifted in terms of taste. So what originally had been a lot more emphasis on these spicy baking notes with quite a bit of pepper and medium tannins smoothed out into this like rich velvet wine with deep plum notes and a little bit of acidity. You had like this rich bouquet on the nose. Um, and overall it was, I wouldn't say it was, it was probably light to medium bodied. It, despite the color, despite the fact that it was like looking up at a midnight sky, it completely opened up and became this love, like what I love about Carignan and Grenache. Um, so it was a treat, but you definitely, I mean, I would almost say like it needs like another year or two hmm. in the bottle before you open it. Um, or a really good aerator. So that was, that was my wine of the week. Sounds delicious. Uh, and my wine of the week is also Spanish. Um, if you've met myself or Dana before, this is totally unsurprising that we, at least every like few weeks are picking Spanish wines. Um, but mine is a, uh, a 2019, it's called a Nave Sur from Cuatro Rayas, um, which is a Spanish Rueda from the Rueda region. Um, so a wonderful, relatively common white wine uh, in Spain and pretty easily accessible and found internationally as well. Uh, the Rueda region is just south of um, Rioja towards Madrid near a city called Valladolid. If you're familiar with that, it's very, very dry. Um, and with that, you get some pretty... Um, heavily sun exposed, uh, whites, which tend to be a little bit, um, heavier, a little bit creamier and a little bit more full bodied. Um, this one, the, the grapes are Viura and Verdejo, uh, is the blend. Um, and it's funny. We were just talking about orange wines being like, because of skin contact, they get very like tannic and, and kind of creamy in a sense. Uh, this one also has those characteristics, much less pronounced than many orange wines, uh, but naturally through the standard white production process. Um, it's really drinkable. Uh, it's super cold where I am right now. And even though the wine was really like crisp and, and refreshing and, and acidic and punchy, uh, it didn't feel out of place on a very, very, very cold day. Um, so it's really, really great wine. Uh, and I think it's relatively easily found. It seems to be pretty well, yeah, easily found here in the States. It should be between 10, 15 bucks. Um, and it easily drinks like something twice that. So fantastic find. Mm -hmm. um, and Spain continues to deliver. Like always. Uh, <laughs> if Spain is listening right now, <laughs> we are available at any time to come to any region and taste wine and 
And you could, you too can be a guest on our podcast. <laughs> yes, country of Spain. <laughs> Please join us. <laughs> well, that's all. That's all for this week. Um, yeah, this is great. Go find an orange wine. Um, and we'll talk to you soon. Ciao. Mm-hmm.